Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. And you know, worship is the absolute heartbeat of life itself. You are created to worship. You will worship. The question is what? You might think that worship is contained within the walls of the church, but in fact we're all built to worship something. Be careful what you worship because you will have to live with the fruit of what you worship. It's true. King Solomon can testify to that. Dr. Corbett has some great insights on worship tonight as he looks at the question, is anything too hard for me? So Jeremiah's been in this king's prison for 18 months and the king comes to him and recites the prophecy that Jeremiah gave 18 months earlier. But he asks Jeremiah, why did you say this? And Jeremiah gives a very strange answer. I think it's strange and I'm not sure if it is just the way the text is arranged or if it was his answer. But we see the answer in verse 6. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Hanamel, your cousin, will come to you and ask you to buy his field. And we, we read that Hanamel indeed did come and ask Jeremiah to buy the field in Benjamin. And Jeremiah did buy it. And it was a prophetic sign that one day, once again, houses and land would be bought and sold in Israel. And then, of course, Jeremiah realizes, hang on, I've been prophesying that the Babylonians are going to come in and conquer Jerusalem and confiscate all houses, land and possessions. I've just put my entire life savings, 17 pieces of silver, which is about six months of wages, on the table, that's, that's my entire life savings, and it's now gone. I'm never going to get this land. I'm never going to get to use the land that I've just poured my entire life savings into. And so Jeremiah then launches into what I think is one of the most beautiful passages of worship in Scripture. And it's from verses 16 down to verse 25. And we see that Jeremiah declares that there is nothing too hard for God. Jeremiah declares that God is a right God, a good God, a just God, a God who rewards those who faithfully serve him. Jeremiah is declaring some, some profound truth about God. This is one of the most beautiful passages of worship in the Bible. Yet, verse 25 reveals his motive for worship. Because it's in that verse that Jeremiah says, Having said to God, you are the great God. There is nothing too hard for you. You reward people who do what you say, don't you? Now listen, about that land you told me to buy. And this exquisite piece of worship, suddenly the motive behind it is revealed. And you can see Jeremiah is worshipping God because he's trying to manipulate God. And can I just say, in essence, that is what pagan worship is about pagan worship was about doing an act of worship to manipulate the particular god you are worshiping that's not godly worship it's not what jesus described in john chapter 4 where he said those who worship god must worship god in spirit and in truth now what does it in spirit and in truth mean the spirit with a heart that just wants to love god in the truth of who God is. So pagan worship is we will worship God to bring the glory down. Now that might be a little close to the bone for some Christian churches that actually promote that as their slogan. But that is fundamentally pagan. We will worship until the presence of God manifests here. Really, 
So we will do something to twist God's arm into doing what we want, really. Is that, is that why we're doing this, is it? Is that why we're worshipping? God forbid. I hope not. I hope we're worshipping God because we love God. I hope we're worshipping God because he's God and he deserves our worship. So here we have Jeremiah worshipping God. Oh, this magnificent worship of God. And then suddenly God interrupts him. And that's where we're at in the text. Verse 26, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? So God interrupts the worship of Jeremiah. What would we do if we are worshipping, thinking that if we worship, souls will get saved? If we worship, we can see financial breakthrough. If we worship, we can see sick bodies healed. If we do this, God must do this. If we do this, God must do that. If we do this, God is forced to do what we want. That's not biblical worship. That's paganism. But what if we were doing that and suddenly some young kid just stood on a chair and said, Thus says the Lord! Excuse me, do you mind? We're trying to hear from God. Just sit back down. Can you see this is like, whoa. Jeremiah is interrupted by God. And so... We see that God, God asked this question, is there anything too hard for me? In other words, Jeremiah, do you know who you're worshipping here? I am the God of all flesh. Nothing is too hard for me. This is called sovereignty. Sovereignty is where God will have his way. And I know that there's a whole bunch of Christians that are influenced by yin-yang, rip-curl theology. But I've got to tell you, the world does not operate on the basis of yin-yang or rip-curl. The world operates on the basis that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. As Jeff shared this morning, even your salvation didn't catch God by surprise. But what? They got saved? Oh, oh, I was trying to keep them out. I don't think that's how salvation works. God is sovereign. Now, I've had people say, I don't believe God sets people up for salvation. And then I've asked them this, well, are you saved? Yes. And then I'll say, well, do you think God set you up to get saved? Oh, yeah, well, he set me up. And if I was to ask every one of you, I'm pretty sure you would say, you know, it's just, it was a stranger set of coincidences that brought me to Christ. Yeah, what do we call that? We call being set up by God. And I think it's appropriate that we pray that people get set up by God. And it's appropriate that we worship the God who sets up. That's God's sovereignty. Next verse, verse 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. Into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he shall conquer it. Verse 29. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on those on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. Verse 30, for the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. 
The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. A couple of points here. Firstly, there are some people who cannot comprehend that God is a passionate God. God is a God who gets angry. God is a God who feels deep passion for people. You're created in the image of that God. How do you feel when you see injustice? Grumpy, angry, furious. Guess why? Because you're created in the image of a God who can't stand injustice. He can't stand it. Wickedness and evil. God hates it. And it provokes him to anger. But guess what? When you see self-sacrifice, when you see people being generous, when you see people going the extra mile, when you see people laying down their lives for someone, how does, what does that evoke in you? Deep admiration, deep appreciation. When you see something beautiful, it causes you to appreciate the beauty because you're created in the image of a God who has deep passion. That's why I think we need to serve God passionately. And we're created in the image of a God who is passionate. So God is provoked, can be provoked to anger. Let's hope we don't do that. So what does God expect of us as worshippers? And today it is about worship. This is, we're looking at worship. This is what's happening here in Jeremiah. And you know, worship is the absolute heartbeat of life itself. You are created to worship. You will worship. The question is what? <laughs> you will get passionate about something. What will you get passionate about? Will you get passionate about God? Will you love Jesus Christ? Will you get passionate in your worship? Because if it's not for Jesus, it will be for Holden Racing Car Team, Ford Racing Car Team, the, the Geelong Cats or who, whatever it is. There is something that will get your attention because you're created to do that. You're created to do that. You're created to worship. So what does God expect of his worshippers? God expects his worshippers to trust him. What does that look like? I call this open-handed worship rather than clenched fist worship. <laughs> God, you, do, you let me down. I love you. I worship you. I praise you. The words don't match the hand. God, I, I don't understand cancer. I, I, I don't understand road death. I don't understand my company being closed. But I worship you. God expects from his worshippers trust. Trust God. Reese read that out this morning. To trust God. Put God first in our trust. God expects his worshippers to adore him. You know, every time we come to Christmas... Oh, come, let us adore him. I think that was written by Charles Wesley. It's a, I love that. I was going to say hymn. And it really, it is a hymn. I don't know that he designed for that to be sung at Christmas. He designed for that to be sung. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Indeed, church. <laughs> what does God expect of his worshippers? To adore him. The psalmist said in Psalm 99 verse 5, Exalt the Lord our God. What does that mean? Adore him. 
Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Holy is he. God expects his worshippers to praise him. To praise him. In Isaiah 25 verse 1, the prophet says this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. And the name of God is everything God is. We could say, well, what's his name? And Jehovah's Witnesses make a big deal about this. They say, well, his name is Jehovah. That is just incorrect. Because the name Jehovah is a, is a very late invention. It's actually the creation, it, it's created from the word Yahweh and Adonai. They just took the, the Yahweh, which is, starts with J, not Y, and they just put the Adonai vows and made this word in about 1500. So for 15 centuries, when the New Testament was written, or the, the Bible had been completed, no one had ever heard of the name Jehovah. It's a very bad word, actually. Yahweh is a much better word. It's the actual biblical word. But that's not the point. It's not, if we can just get his name, we'll be able to really worship him. That's crazy. I mean, we, we call Tony, Tony, but that's not what his mother calls him, called him. What does she call him? Hey, you. No, Anthony. Anthony. Now, if you said, no, 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 you called him Tony, Elder Tony. I'm not going to know Elder Tony. There is no Elder Tony in this church. It's Elder Anthony. And you, and you could be, okay, you could be right. In other words, it doesn't matter what we call God. Now, I know that there are some people, even in our city, that go, we're not going to any of these established churches in here in Launceston because they call Jesus, Jesus. And really, his name is Yeshua. Can I just say, I'm going to say it. Those people are being stupid. Stupid. Now that I've said it, I'm going to say it again. No, I won't. Really, it is silly. If you call... Tony, Tony or Anthony or hey you, he knows who you're talking about. If we call God Yahweh, Adonai, Yeshua, he knows who you're talking about. So Isaiah said, I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So Isaiah recognised that God should be praised because he's sovereign. And God expects his worshippers to give him undivided devotion. Undivided devotion. So when you're worshipping God, especially in church on a Sunday, um, you know that's not the time to be checking your email. It's not the time to do that. It's the time to give God undivided worship. <laughs> worship you. You know what? If you turn up to church on a Sunday and you pull out your phone and you Facebook check in, Lagana Christian Church, that's good. I reckon that's really good. Do it. Get it out of the way. Put it in your pocket. And when it comes to the preaching, then open up the Bible and just stay focused. You know, we, we can get so fooled into thinking that there's a whole group of people out there that want to distort marriage. They don't want to distort marriage. They couldn't care less about marriage. They want, to, they want to wipe out the Christian church and they want to change the battleground for who's going to be worshipped. That's what this is about. They want to kill old people in nursing homes. They think it's about old people. It's not about old people. It's about whether you Christians have a God who can tell us what's right and what's wrong. And as long as you believe that, you worship that God and we don't want you to do that. We want to worship another God 
And some, some of these guys, in, in fact, Bob Brown in his book actually names the God. He calls the God Mother Gaia. Mother Nature refers to her as a God. Don't tell me this isn't about worship. This is fundamentally about worship. Verse 31. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight. Now I read that and I thought, really? Really? David was the one who I thought built Jerusalem. As I looked closer, I realized, no, actually David didn't do it. David conquered Jerusalem. If you, if you know the story of uh, David and Goliath, what a great story, David and Goliath. Remember, um, <clears throat> remember what David did to Goliath when he killed him? Remember what he did? Took Goliath's sword and what? Cut his head off. That's not the end of the story though, is it? What did he then do? Do you remember? He took the head of Goliath. And there's all the adoring crowds over here. Oh, David, you're so awesome. Oh, David. And David's like not even hearing that. He grabs the head of Goliath and he's off that way. He goes to the city of the Jebusites, which is what Jerusalem used to be called. He goes to the city of the Jebusites where God had told him, God had said when Israel moved in under Joshua, they were supposed to conquer the whole land. And Judah conquered the whole land except one city, the city of the Jebusites. It was unfinished business. And David, this 16-year-old kid who loved God, who said, I'm not going to let a giant slander my God. I don't care if he's nine feet tall. I'll take him on because I'm coming at him in the name of the Lord. 16-year-old kid who's worshipping God and takes on God. Come on. Filled with the Spirit of God. He takes Goliath's head, dripping blood, mangle-festicated brain juices dropping out of it. He goes up to the walls of Jebus, the city of the Jebusites. What the heck is he doing? What is he doing? (laughs) He's saying, you're next. Then they go back and bury Goliath. And and we read that David, when he became king, he ruled in Hebron for the first seven years. And guess what was in his heart? This isn't where I want my palace. I want my palace in in what I'm going to call Jerusalem, the city of David. And he conquers Jerusalem. He conquered it. He didn't finish it. He didn't build it. He just conquered it. Remember, he's dying and he says to his son, finish what I've started. Solomon, finish what I've started. Build the temple. God told me I couldn't. You do it. So Solomon established the city. And we're going to see in a moment... Why that is significant? Because from the foundation of the city or from the establishment of the city, God says there's been nothing but evil in this city. We're in the next verse, verse 32. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, 
the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it was King Solomon that established the city of Jerusalem. And remember what he did? He took upon himself 800 wives. You've heard it before. It's worth saying again. One is enough. 800 wives. Oh my giddy aunt. Why would you do that? But along with the 800 wives came 800 gods. And it says they turned Solomon's heart away from God. And the result was that Jerusalem was established as a place where idolatry was tolerated. Here's the thing. What you tolerate, and I'm using that word very advisedly because we're hearing people who oppose true worship tell us that we are intolerant. Here's the principle. What you tolerate, you encourage. It's that simple. Every parent knows it. What you tolerate, you encourage. And when a government wants to pass a law because they go, well, obviously people aren't respecting our laws, so we need to tolerate this behaviour and legislate for it. Really? Really? Tell, so let me get this right. We've got laws that say do not murder. And there's people that just don't respect those laws, so they murder. So what are you going to do? You're going to license murderers? Make a dollar out of it? This is absurd thinking. It wouldn't pass in everyday life. And yet we have politicians promoting legislation on this basis. Solomon tolerated idolatry. What you tolerate you encourage now solomon is let's figure this out he's about 900 bc we're now about 600 bc so for 300 years the decision of one man has tainted the whole city so next time you think you want to leave a legacy it's not just the legacy that you'll leave in your lifetime it's the legacy you'll leave way beyond your life and your legacy could last hundreds of years worth thinking about okay verse 33 they have turned to me their back and not their face though i have taught them persistently they have not listened to receive instruction verse 34 they set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it verse 34 and our last verse that we're looking at right now, verse 35. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Remember, Molech was the, the, the moon god, the god of fire, uh, moon or sun, and uh, uh, sorry, sun god, and uh, Astra was the moon goddess. And so he was the god of fire, the, re- represented by the sun. And they would go out just on the, the back wall of the, the temple. It went down into a valley, the valley of Hinnom. And they had a, a place called Tophet, T-O-P-H-E-T-H, Tophet. And there in, there was a furnace that the potters used to use. And that was the, where they burned rubbish. And, and they would take their young children, hold it up to the god of fire, Molech, and throw their newborn babies in. God said, I hate that. You make me so angry when you do that. 
And imagine that. Imagine a society that would kill unwanted children because it was, they were inconvenient. What a, sick, what a sick society that would be, eh? They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Moloch was the god of fire. Worship with child sacrifices being thrown into the fire. Here's the point. In the song Forever Rain, it says, there's a line in there that says, the riches of your love. I want you to notice that. We are worshipping the God who is rich in love. That song goes on and says, there is joy in you. Just hold that thought because worshippers experience the fruit of what they worship. If you're worshipping the God of all peace, the God of all joy, the God of all power, what do you experience when you're worshipping a God who is absolutely in control? The peace that comes from worshipping the God who reigns. What's the fruit of that kind of worship? It's peace in your life. What, what do you get when you worship the God who is the epitome of joy? You get joy. When you worship God, the God of all joy, you get joy. What do you, what, what do you get when you worship this God of peace and joy and love? The riches of your love? You experience a new love. That's the fruit of your worship. What do you get when you worship the God of fire? You get fire. And Jerusalem, God says, is saying in this passage, would be destroyed by the fruit of their worship. Jerusalem was literally burnt to the ground. They experienced the fruit of their worship. Proverbs says it in two places, Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16. It says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. But its end is the way to death. You can go, well, I don't want to worship a God who tells me what to do. I want to worship a God who tells me I can do whatever I want to do. Oh, let me get this right. You want to worship yourself. In essence, that's what you're saying. Well, you'll get the fruit of that. You'll get the fruit of selfishness. If you worship selfishness, that's the fruit you'll get. Whatever you worship, you will get the fruit of it. If you want peace, if you want joy, if you want happiness, then worship the one true living God. <laughs> not to get it. I'm telling you, it's the fruit. It's not the reason. <laughs> the root of why we worship is because you love him. He's good and he's worthy of worship. That's the root. And the fruit is really, really good. So here's the question. What is the fruit of what you're worshipping? What's the fruit of what you're worshipping? If we're going to worship God, we need to trust him, to adore him and recognise his sovereignty. Some food for thought in tonight's message in Jeremiah. More from Dr. Corbett next week. 
podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Is Anything Too Hard For Me?, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.